All right. Well, to that, let's look now at Exodus 20. And here we are, we're continuing an exposition, uh, most particularly right now through the Ten Commandments, but that's just because that's where we are in Exodus. Uh, we're in Exodus chapter 20, we've been running through this book, and now we're at the fourth command, namely about the Sabbath. And before we set out to study it, I do want to just set it before you. So let me read Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, to set before you our text. This is what Holy Scripture says. Exodus 20, verse 8 and following. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This is the word of the Lord. So here we are. We're back. It's Sunday morning. It is the Lord's day. The day to gather with God's people. The day to get together with the family of faith and to hear the word preached, to sing songs of hope and joy in the gospel, to see friends maybe that we haven't seen much this week, to maybe, if you're lucky, catch a potluck lunch after church, or to be invited to a new friend's house to uh, enjoy a meal together. I don't know, when I frame it like that, uh, that all sounds pretty good. And yet, isn't it, making time for church, just think about Sunday morning, let alone all of the other activities maybe during the week, making time to gather on Sunday morning does not always, I would say even maybe typically, feel like a gift. Often it feels like far more like a chore. Especially, I might add, if you have young kids. Because uh, why? Because not only do you have to get yourself ready and somewhat presentable to show up, but you got to get them ready too. And you've got to find their clothes that morning, and you need to go find their shoes, which who knows where they went after Sunday afternoon last week. Uh, you have to raise them out of bed, and you got to do so seemingly on the one day they don't want to get up early for those young children. Why is that? You have to push and control, and you rush everyone in the car, and you're in the car, and you're buckled. you got the car seats all fitted, and the kids are, you know, down, and then you hear as you're starting to pull away, oh, stop the car, I forgot my Bible, I forgot my water bottle, book bag, stickers, whatever else. And so eventually you're off, you're running a little bit late, and you're in this steel carriage, and it's a cocktail of kids bickering over who got what seat, and mixed in with testy, sleep, and caffeine-deprived parents, zooming off to prepare their hearts to worship Jesus. Your Sunday mornings ever feel like that? I think many of us can relate, even if it's not every Sunday morning. But now we have to ask, is that what God intended for corporate worship? That that's what it should feel like? I mean, surely not, right? And actually, as we return to Exodus 20 here, to the Ten Commandments, we come to that commandment that's most associated, at least in our minds, with Israel's corporate weekly worship, the Sabbath. And we will find, as we uncover this, that it does not, 
apply to us directly. We'll talk far more about that. Why? Because we're the church. We're part of the new covenant, not the old covenant that the Ten Commandments are a part of. And yet, it has so much to teach us, a particularly important lesson about our very life and about our worship. And if I could summarize it, the, the lesson is this, you need to work hard. I mean, feel the irony of this. You need to work hard to rest. And I don't even mean you need to work really hard so you can rest. You need to work hard to rest. But it's maybe not the kind of hard work and rest that you think. You need to work hard to rest your soul in Christ and His cross work alone. This is what the Sabbath is teaching you. Far and away above all else. To put down your efforts, to put down your works, to put down your Sabbath keeping, to put down your regular spotless attendance so far in 2023 to church, is to put down everything that you can offer to God and say, I will offer nothing, I will rest alone in your work. This is what the Sabbath is all about. So you need to work hard, because this is harder than you think, given where our hearts are at. Work hard to rest in the finished work of Christ. And we will be taught that as we look even at this text and as we start to explore what the Bible has to say about this. But we're going to have three lessons from the Sabbath and what it has to teach us. And the first lesson the Sabbath teaches us about how we would work hard to rest in Christ is this. We find that the Sabbath teaches us to trust. find this in verse 8. The Sabbath teaches us to trust. It teaches us to trust God. And this way we find for Israel, it teaches them and so to increase their faith, but at the same time it tests it. It tests Israel's faith. It tests their active reliance upon Him. And maybe in some ways this morning too, it tests us and it exposes our lack of faith. So we turn to the fourth commandment of the ten. And it's here in verse 8 of Exodus 20. Let me remind you of it. It says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now, we need to make quickly three clarifications of the language here so we can understand what's going on. First, the command, the main command that starts off here is to remember. And implied with that, if you're going to remember something, you have to know something already about that thing. I can't tell you to remember something that's going to happen in the future. You have to know about what this is. You have to have some familiarity with it. We'll have to explore that in a second. So that's first, you're to remember. Second, what are they to remember? They are to remember the, quote, Sabbath day. Literally, the word Sabbath is the ceasing it's a stopping. You're supposed to remember the stopping day. And that way we understand it's the rest day. You stop from your working and your labors on that day because that's the day's name. But then third, it says, you're to remember the Sabbath day to, in the way it translates here, to keep it holy. And almost all English translations render it this way. And I bring this up because... As we naturally read this, I think as English speakers anyway, if you're going to keep something holy, it already is, right? And so you just need to make sure you don't mess it up. 
It's already a holy day, so don't defile it, don't corrupt it, don't mess it up. And yet, that's not quite the sense of the Hebrew, I would contend. Uh, I think this translation captures it just right. It's called the New English Translation. It renders it this way. Remember the Sabbath day to set it apart as holy. I think that captures it perfectly. Remember the Sabbath day to set it apart as holy. That is, that's what holy means, right? To be set apart, to be different. You can't treat this Sabbath day like every other day of the week. It's different. It's special. It's in that way holy. You cannot live the Sabbath day out just like you do every other day. You need to be different. You need to do certain things or don't do certain things in particular, as we'll see. But whatever you must do, you cannot treat that day like any other day. It must be different. It's set apart. It's holy. Now, we're going to see why that's so important. And what was this Sabbath day that they are remembering by turning back the clock in Exodus a little bit. And let's go to Exodus chapter 16. So I want you to flip back in your Bibles and look at Exodus chapter 16. Again, when God said, remember the Sabbath day, He was building on things they already understood, at least somewhat. But where do we first hear about the Sabbath? Well, the word Sabbath day first occurs here in Exodus 16. And I'll submit to you, not in Genesis 1 or 2. We'll get there later. But it first occurs here in Exodus 16. If you remember, this is the case where God gave them manna from heaven to eat. This is the something about the Sabbath that's calling, being called to mind. Because if you remember Israel, as they came out of slavery in Egypt, they were brought out, out of Egypt, but they were in a desert wilderness. There was no food around, and they start not asking God, they're demanding, complaining to God, hey, we're starving, we need something to eat. And so God says, okay, I'm going to mysteriously give you bread from heaven. Each day you're going to wake up, it's going to show up all around your camp to feed the upwards of two million Israelites in this desert. And that was to happen every day, except on the seventh day when there would be no manna. So that meant on the sixth day, they were to go out and gather twice as much manna, one for day six and some for day seven. Now, if you remember, this should have seemed like quite risky business to the Israelites at that time, already in this first week of manna. Why? Because they instantly discovered that you can't hoard manna for the next day. Remember what happened when you tried to do that? It rotted and it stank, got very undesirable to eat. Because you couldn't do this. You couldn't, you know, try and fill up your pantry on Monday so you could take the rest of the week off by just gathering up more manna. That's not how it worked. And you couldn't leave some over to have a snack the next morning. Why? Because God showed it spoiled, it rotted, it stank. Manna doesn't last two days. It has a single day expiration. Except on day six. Look at verse 23 of Exodus 16. He said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest. A holy Sabbath to the Lord. That's the first occurrence of Sabbath in the Bible. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside, lay aside to be kept till morning. 
But God, we've done that before and it got gross. I don't want to eat that tomorrow. But you see, God is promising them, I will preserve it. He's giving them a test, isn't he? Will you trust me? To take up twice as much manna on day six to prepare for day seven, that was going to take a step of obedience, a step of faith. Because their experience, even just with the first week of manna, told them something else entirely. This wasn't going to work. There was no way this was going to work. But manna confronted them with the dilemma. Will I trust my experience and my wisdom, what I know, or will I obey God and trust what He has said? This is the dilemma that manna puts before them. Trust in myself and my experience, my work, or trust in God, His wisdom, His experience, His work. Because for those that trusted God, they were rewarded. Look to verse 24. So they laid it aside till the morning, and Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. So here it is. This is when God introduces the Sabbath day to Israel. It was a day to cease from what starts off your normal travel, to cease from gathering, and to start trusting and relying on God to have provided for you when you can't provide for yourself. Again, the Sabbath is this test of faith. Will they trust their works or lean on God's? Another way to say it, this test of faith, is to ask this question. Can you, and this is one we must ask our very hearts this morning, can you trust God enough to stop working? Can you trust God to provide for you that you can stop working? And He can come up with whatever you need. Are you willing to trust Him? He's inviting you to. The question is, will you? Because I can tell you, I think we all have experienced this. You know what a lack of trust looks like in someone? When they come behind you and check all of your work that they tasked you to do? You been there? Been there in a job? You ever done that to your kids? Oh, I do that. You task your kids with some chore? Like, yeah, you're going to go vacuum the upstairs. And I don't even go check their work. I go grab a vacuum and follow them. Or, you know, the kid wants to help out building some Ikea piece of furniture. And they're like, oh, can I tighten all the bolts? Rick? Sure you can. And then what do I do when they leave the room? I tighten them all harder. Why? Why trust and rely on their performance when I can just do a little bit more work and be sure? Why trust them? Because I trust myself far more. And God placed the Sabbath day right at the end of Israel's week to help them to be sure, yes, to test them, but to strengthen their faith, to ask the question, will you trust in my provision when you can do nothing? You can't even go out and gather. Will you stop working long enough to trust me? So the Sabbath, as it comes in as a rest day, it comes in with the lesson of trust, of faith. But most fundamentally, the second lesson the Sabbath teaches us is simply that, to rest. And so let's look back to the command as we look to Exodus 20, verses 9 and 10. 
Remember, we said in verse 8, the command is, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It's supposed to be a day that's different, separate, set apart. Well, how are they supposed to make it different? How is this Sabbath day supposed to be different than all others? Well, he tells us expressly how in verses 9 and 10. And it has, you might say, two parts to it. In the first half, as we read in verse 9, six days you shall labor and do all your work. So this day is going to be different because the first six days, you're going to do all your normal work like you normally do. But the seventh day, verse 10, is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall not do any work. And that means you or your son, your daughter, your male servant, female servant, your livestock or sojourner within your gates. You can't give him the work either. So how is this day going to be different? Well, it's a rest day. It's a ceasing day. You're not going to work at all on this day. What do you mean by no work at all? The Jews today have contracted 39 kind of different activities you cannot do today. But if we just go to the Old Testament itself, it gives, it fills out a good bit more of what this means to not work. You can't walk too far in the Old Testament. You certainly can't farm. You can't even light fires to cook your food. You can't conduct any kind of normal business. You can't go work in the field, that's for sure. What does it encompass? Every typical, everyday essential labor is just put aside. And so you see, it's not merely refraining from saying you're paying job outside the house, if we can put our kind of society and economy into this command. You know, it's not merely, well, you're a, you know, a barber, and so... You just can't work on the Sabbath day. No, it's a lockdown for everybody. Nobody's leaving the house and nobody's doing any work. Whether you're the, the dad or the mom or the grandma or the kid or the servant inside, not even the animals. Nobody's working today. They were to refrain from all normal, everyday job labors. They were to quiet down to stop their frenetic working for just one day. And by the way, as we saw like last week about taking the Lord's name, God is serious about His Sabbath keeping. Turn over with me. Let's just go forward in Exodus this time to Exodus chapter 31. Look at the 31st chapter of Exodus. Because here, God's going to clue them into what the penalty is for those who disobey or break the Sabbath. But He also fills in a bit why it's so significant, as we'll see. So let's look. This is Exodus 31. I'm going to start reading in verse 13. He says, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. Now, just note that, where it begins, above all. And where we're at, this is really the end of the giving of all of the stipulations of the law, at least this first round. And the last thing he's going to tell them, oh, by the way, above all, remember my Sabbaths. These are pretty important, aren't they? Why are they so important? Why do they need to be kept above all, this rest day? Well, he goes on, the middle there, verse 13. You shall keep my Sabbaths for, here's the reason, this is a sign between me and you throughout generations, 
It's a sign. It's a pointer. That's what signs do. They point to something. This one is an outward sign that I am your God and you are my people. And what's the sign? You don't work on the seventh day. It's your rest day. This commitment to rest as a whole Sabbath day was a, a sign to the world that they were different, that they were God's people. They belonged to God. That was their badge showing them who they were. Such that, verse 14, you shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Whoa, he's serious about this. Verse 15, six days your work shall be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, resting rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, in case you didn't hear it the first time, shall be put to death. That's intense. Any work? Later on again, as I mentioned, you light a fire. That's breaking the Sabbath. Why, why is he so intent on this? Well, because what did he say in the middle of verse 13? This is a sign, a badge, an outward show of our relationship. Later on, it'll be even more explicit. It talks about this as a sign of the Mosaic Covenant. This relationship that God has with His people He redeemed. That's what the Ten Commandments are about. We talked about this as we set up our study on the Ten Commandments. This is part of the Old Covenant law. And part of the Old Covenant law was this sign, and it was Sabbath-keeping. It was a sign that they were in a relationship, a covenant with God. So get this. This makes a little more sense about why He's so intent they obey it. Because when you disobey the Sabbath, what are you saying? You're taking that badge and you're throwing it on the ground. You're taking that relationship and saying, I don't want a piece of it. And so then God says, you don't want a piece of my Sabbath? You don't want a piece of my relationship? I don't want a piece of you. And so for Israel, in the midst of this pagan, polytheist, idolatrous world, the thing that was to show out the most, to be so evidently distinct, as you observe them at least for seven days, what shows they are the Lord's people? They have a day of rest. Because this is the thing that the Sabbath is all about. It's all about rest, rest, rest. And this is maybe was afresh to me this week in what made my study, in one sense, so unrestful. <laughs> the irony here. This past week was to see this fourth command, it's mainly about rest. And not primarily or hardly even at all about weekly corporate worship. That's not mainly what this command is about at all. So far as we've read, this command doesn't say a thing about weekly corporate worship. Actually, the only allusions to it are these. You can see something in Leviticus chapter 23. It's called a holy convocation that you observe in your own house. Okay. But we see something too, or the allusion to it. We read it in uh, chapter 31, but I'm looking back at the command now in Exodus 20, as it's first given in the 10. 
Because he calls it a Sabbath. This is verse 10 of chapter 20. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. So we do understand right out of the get-go, whatever role corporate worship has in it or not, this is not a rest just for rest's sake. This isn't a vacation day so you can just, you know, I don't know what, sleep all day? That's not what this day is for. It's a day so you can rest, disengage from your regular activity so you can refocus and reflect. Namely, reflect on your God. Because again, back to Exodus 20, he gives, if we look down to verse 11, he gives the reason why Israel was given a rest day on the seventh day. And it was to reflect God's own rest when he made the world in six days and rested on the seventh. But they're supposed to think about that. Think about God's rest. It's not merely a way to rest from our jobs or our typical daily adventures so we can focus finally on our hobbies or our interests or our desires that we just didn't have time for. That's not what the Sabbath is about. It's a day to refrain from your labor and obligations so you can look at God, think about God, reflect on Him and His works, and most of all, the rest He has given His people. So, I will not argue with those who contend that we are commanded to rest so we can worship. That's true. But we need to get the emphasis right, at least the emphasis in the Old Testament. Because the emphasis is not, and this is how we normally do it in our church circles, oh, you need to rest so you can worship, you know, namely gather together. That's not how the Sabbath is framed in the Old Testament. It's framed like this, you need to rest so you can reflect, so you can rest and think and worship. And this distinction is important to kind of deprogram how I think we normally think about this fourth command. It's important if we're going to make sense of what Jesus does with the command. It's like we saw in Matthew's gospel a number of times. Or if we're going to deconstruct and make sense of what the apostles do or seemingly don't do with this command. It's all about rest. Rest, rest, rest. And that's confirmed further if you'll turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 5. So just go right in your Bible, a couple books, and we're in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And we turn here, Deuteronomy means second law, and it's the reiteration of the Ten Commandments and the law of God in the Old Covenant. And picking up in verse 12 of Deuteronomy 5, he gives the law, Moses restates it for us, in almost identical language. That is, this should sound very familiar. Here we go, Deuteronomy 5, verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you, referring to Sinai. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates." that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. But it's almost identically the same. But at the very end there, he clarifies what this is about. It's so that even your servants can what? Have rest. And so can you. Now, in the Exodus rendition, he next goes to the creation week. 
And he said, God made the world in six days and rested on the seventh, and so that's why you're going to rest. But here he does something different in Deuteronomy. He grounds the command not in the creation week. He grounds it in their rest from slavery, their deliverance. Look at verse 15 of Deuteronomy 5. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So you see, what ties the Sabbath together and holds it together through the Bible is not one day out of seven. It's rest. That's what it's most fundamentally about. It's a rest day, yes, just like how God rested on the seventh day, but it's a rest day just like God giving rest to the people of Israel when He brought them out of Egypt. That's what this command's about. And so we just need to then, on that, pause for a moment and think, does my life, does my church life, my Christian life even, Feel it all restful. And based on my conversations with people, let alone my own experience, I don't think I can say yes to that. And how do I know this? Well, try this one. Ask somebody how they're doing that didn't hear this sermon yet, right? Ask someone how, you're do- how they're doing, and what are they going to tell you? Or you ask them this, what have you been up to? And they're going to tell you, oh, well, I've been so busy. Oh, I'm busy, busy, busy. Busy, busy, bee. That's me. I'm so busy. It's crazy busy. It's not even just busy. It's crazy busy. School's been busy. Work's been busy. You know this. We're doing kids' sports. They're busy. Not to mention throwing church meetings and functions and prayer gatherings and Bible studies. And some of us are already thinking, you know, when does this end, by the way? Because, you know, I'm really busy. Tied to that, we don't merely feel busy. We are stressed about how busy we are. I mean, how many of us, like for all of our groaning about COVID stuff, like at first we're like, this COVID lockdown is kind of cool. Nobody's expecting anything of me. I don't have to go and be anywhere. And we start thinking, why did I cram my schedule with all of this stuff? And then guess what happened? We're right back where we were, aren't we? We couldn't wait to get busy again. We live at this frenetic pace, always trying to occupy ourselves. What is this about? Some of it is we're trying to justify who we are. We're trying to justify our job and our career. So I'm going to work really hard at that. People know I'm successful. They know I can work. We're going to justify ourselves as a mom. I'm going to be the super, uber, duper homeschool mom. I'm going to... to, Homeschool them through graduate school to PhDs if I have to. That'll mean I've made it. That'll mean I'm productive. That'll mean I'm something. But is that how life is supposed to be? Is that how we're supposed to look at it? And I submit to you, certainly not, especially as we're talking about the stressful piece of that category. Most of all, the the first word that should label our relationship with God shouldn't be busy. 
looking at this, the right term seems to be rest. But how do we get there? Where is there rest in a busy, productive, very active Christian life? Well, you got to follow the Sabbath to where it's leading you. Because see, the Sabbath also gives us lessons. It teaches us about hope. And we see that even as we look back to verse 11, back to Exodus 20. The Sabbath is not an end of itself. It was pointing you somewhere. You're supposed to follow the crumbs to where the Sabbath's pointing. And that surfaces even as we round out here the Sabbath command in verse 11. For here, the verse, verse 11, gives us the immediate rationale why God gave Israel the Sabbath. And it reads, verse 11, For, here's the reason, In six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So there it is. God gave Israel a seven-day week cycle. Why? Because He made the world in such a fashion, in such a pattern, and so they could be like God and think about His rest. They were to organize their whole lives by weeks because that's the very way God organized the creation week and then capstoned it with a rest. I mean, even the end of creation account talks about how God looked over all that He has made and He said, it's very good, and He rested. And Israel's observance of a seven-day week was going to remind them of that rest every week. And that was going to make them different from all the peoples in the, in the world. Because you know this, we read this in Genesis, but God put stars and the sun and the moon in the sky to mark seasons and times for the whole world. But, but this was fresh in my study this week. But best we can tell from history, ancient civilizations, yes, they've been counting days, moon phases, seasons and years, but not seven-day weeks. There's no marker in the heavens to tell you when a week begins and ends. But this was going to define the people of Israel, to have them reflect back, not to the heavens, not looking to the sky, but to the one who made them all in just six days, and then he rested. By the way, it's just a brief aside. You must understand, when they heard this from Mount Sinai, and they're hearing about God made the earth in six days and rested on the seventh, and so you're going to then work six days and rest on the seventh? And then also those same Israelites, as they go on to read about the creation account in Genesis 1, not a one of them thought, oh, you know, I bet those days in Genesis 1 were really long so he could get all of the creation done. No, because they're patterned after their own work week. God made the world in six 24-hour days and then rested. And so they are called to do the same. And that was going to come to their mind each week as they rest on their own resting day called the Sabbath. Week after week, they were going to stop working and just sit and reflect on God, thinking about His purpose in their life and how He rested 
over a very good created world, he stopped and he rested. As you can tell, it's all about rest. And yet, even as their rest imitates God's rest, it's not the very same because their rest, it's like an hourglass. It flips over and it's gone and you got to go back to work. You ever been on just a, an incredible vacation that you thought, I don't want to go back? But you got to. Well, that was kind of Israel's week every week. They had a rest, but it always ended, and it was always back to work. And they go and think about God's rest. He rested from his works, and it's a works that keeps going. It's a rest that keeps going. That's a true enduring rest. Something that their rest never was. You see, their weekly servants, uh, Sabbath observance was wetting their appetite for a greater rest that wouldn't stop. That's where the author of Hebrews goes when he speaks about the Sabbath rest in Hebrews chapter 4, just as we read. For the Sabbath really moves past the weekly rest. It even moves past the, the promised rest of Israel in the land that was promised to them. And finally, we read this in Hebrews chapter 4. He says this. This is Hebrews 4 verse 9. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And it's not a day or a land. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. This is the rest we're waiting for when we don't work anymore. And so then he says, ironically, let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by short of the same sort of disobedience, which namely in Hebrews 4 is all about unbelief. So how does God give us rest? How do we enter that rest? And so the Sabbath, as the rest of the law, was pointing us to something we could never do or attain for ourselves. We needed someone else's work to give us rest. And so, of course, Christ came, didn't He? And He said, I am Lord of the Sabbath. I am the one the Sabbath was always pointing you to, the one who can finally give you rest, and that by His work alone. So we understand we rest in the finished work of Christ. This is the conclusion of the Sabbath. And I make this point because scour the New Testament. Look for Sabbath keeping in the New Testament, and you will keep looking until your final rest comes. You won't find it. Why? Because the rest the Sabbath was always directing you to has arrived, and it's been accomplished by the work of Christ. Let me show you this. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. So look at Colossians chapter 2. Just by way of reminder, the Colossians were tempted to turn away from Christ or add things to Christ. And a big part of that was even part of the Old Testament law. And to combat that, Paul keeps pointing them back to the head where their life is found in Jesus Christ. 
such that he says things like this, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, but God made you alive together with Christ. How do you do that? Forgiving us all our trespasses, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. It's done and it's gone. All your sins are taken care of in Jesus. Therefore, so now we look verse 16 of Colossians 2. In light of the cross and in light of what he's done, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. Be judgmental against you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Why? Why shouldn't we be thinking about the Sabbath together and how we should do it and what we need to be doing on the Sabbath? He tells us, verse 17, these are a shadow of the things to come. They were always shadows. They were always pointers. But then he says, but the substance, or it is the body, belongs to Christ. Here's the picture. We heard this years ago from Donald Whitney when he taught here, and he gave this excellent illustration of what this Sabbath shadow is. Okay? So let me tell you about shadows. So think about an entryway, a doorway. Okay? And you are waiting someone to come through the doorway. But you can't look directly down the doorway. You see it from the side. But someone's approaching down the doorway to come through, and you're going to see them. But the light's behind them. And so as they walk, they cast a shadow ahead of them as they approach you. Does this kind of make sense? So you're waiting in the room, and you're looking at the doorway, and you see a shadow start to come through the doorway. And this shadow, it's gray, it's two-dimensional, true, but it's giving you the contours, the shapes of what this person who's coming is like. And the shadow of the Sabbath is rest. It's pointing to give you rest. It's promising rest. But then the body comes through the door, and your rest has arrived. See, this mosaic, this old covenant we're studying in Exodus... It's filled with signs and types and pointers and shadows that anticipate the coming of Christ. Of course, we have the sacrificial system. We'll read about that probably in a few months, right? So we get an exodus. But it's preparing for the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You have the great high priest. He represents the people before God. Of course, Jesus does that in heaven for us now to make peace. And so too, we have the Sabbath. It's a shadow, a rest day that points to a greater rest day where you lay down all your works, all your efforts, you stop working and you keep resting on what He has done for you. Paul calls all these things shadows, but the substance is Jesus. And so when Christ comes through the door, when your rest comes through the door, He's here. And if that's happened... Why would we be so preoccupied about the shadow if the one who was pointing us to has already come through the door? I mean, it would be a pretty lame Father's Day if when you showed up for the Father's Day celebration, your kids saw your shadow and they were all preoccupied with your shadow but never hugged you. And yet, that's what it's like going back to the Sabbath. Wanting the thing that it pointed to when he's right here, the only place you can find rest. 
In that way, why settle for a weekly rest that comes and goes each week when you can have a true rest, rest from your labors, a rest from your workings, a rest from your tireless attempts to prove yourself, to measure up, to make up for all the bad things you've done? Why keep on going back to a Christian Sabbath when you can have Christ? When you can have a Savior who said to the burdened, law-stricken people, even under the Sabbath around him, and said, Come to me. Come, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, he said. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Understand, he is our Sabbath. He is our rest. He works salvation for us. We don't have to go behind and check his work. We lay it down and rely on it. We don't need a Sabbath anymore. We don't find Sabbath rest on a day. We find it in a person and his work of Jesus Christ. Don't go back to the shadow. Our hope is not in the shadow, but in the Savior. And that's the assurance of our future. Not how well we can keep a Sabbath, but that He kept it for us and secured us with God. That's our hope. Now, this causes a lot of questions. I was getting emails already anticipating this, and that was before they heard the sermon. So, to clarify some things, to make sure you're hearing me, uh, I want to run through a quick like few question and answer like responses to give some clarifications and some applications as to what this all means, okay? So first, how does the Christian obey the Sabbath principle? Here it is. You rest from your efforts and your works to make you right with God. Instead of relying on them, you rely wholly on the cross work of Christ. And you dare not add to what He's done, you rest in Him. And I will add, despite how good this sounds, rest, permanent retirement spiritually, is that what you're talking about? It's harder to obey than you think, isn't it? Why? Because we're so prone to rely on our efforts. To think our relationship with God now rests on how good we're doing and performing for Him. Such that you run into two extremes. On the one hand, you despair. Why? Because you're carrying around this persistent guilt before God. You're never sure you have peace with Him. You never obey the law well enough. You never do a good enough Sabbath, whatever it is. You're never sure you can measure up. And you know what that is? That's signs of unbelief. A distrust in Christ's cross that it was enough. Or we swing to the opposite direction. Instead of persistent guilt, we start thinking, you know, I'm pretty good at obeying God's law most of the time. God's really pleased with me. Yeah, we're all thankful for Christ, but He's really pleased with me. Look how good of a Christian I am. No. The Sabbath tells you, cease from your working, stop looking to yourself, and look only to Christ. That's how you obey the Sabbath principle. Okay? Next question. Second, does the Sabbath have any other binding command for the Christian? No. 
First of all, why would I say that? Because the Sabbath day was a special day given specifically to the nation of Israel as part of the Old Covenant. Just as God said in Exodus 31 verse 16, it was a sign of the Old Covenant. We're not under the Old Covenant, thankfully, we're under a new one. So just in the way that Jesus abolished the Old Covenant and He fulfilled it, and did away with circumcision and the sacrificial system and the other shadows of the Old Covenant, He did the same with the Sabbath. We as believers in Christ are members of a new covenant with the Sabbath is not a sign of. Now note this. Note what Paul then tells the Roman church in light of this. What does this mean for us? He says this, and this is the only way I can make sense of what then Paul says next. He says this. This is Romans 14 verses 5 and following. He says, one person esteems one day as better than another, Sabbatarians, while another esteems all days alike. All right, Paul, lay into him. Here's what he says. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. What? The one who observes the day observes it, observes it in honor of the Lord. Huh? Yeah. If you want to set aside one special day to God, go for it. But then he tells you this, why do you patch judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? You want to set aside a day? Set aside a day? Sure, go for it. Just don't impose that on other people or judge your brothers less spiritual because they don't do what you do. On these matters of worship and observances, what you should or shouldn't do on any particular day, whether it's Saturday, Sunday, Tuesday, or Wednesday, it's about grace. It's about humility It's about deference to maintain the unity and peace of the assembly. It's about trusting Christ enough to stop judging your brother and to leave that task for Jesus, who actually is their judge, not you. Third question. So are we not required to take off one day out of seven then? That's correct. The Christian is free. He is not bound to take off one day out of seven like this. Now, but wisdom says, judging from the creation week, the dedicated rest rest on one day is good, especially when it directs our focus back to Christ. In other words, it might be good to take a rest day, but like old covenant tithing, which might be good in a sense, it's not required for the Christian. Fourth, are we not even required to take a rest day so we can worship with the church? You're starting to catch me now. That's right. The Christian is under no obligation to cease from working for worship. Rather, the early church saw the Lord's Day as a day of much, much busy service and work. We can work actually out of our soul's rest in Christ. Okay. Fifth, are you saying that our worship together on Sunday, the Lord's Day, does not directly fulfill this fourth command? Now you're really getting it. Correct. It does not, nor is it required by it. As we said earlier, God's people no longer find rest in a day. They find it in a person, Jesus Christ. Sixth, okay, then why are we here? (laughs) Why do we worship each Sunday on the Lord's Day? Well, the clearest directive comes from Hebrews chapter 10, which says and commands, do not neglect meeting together as is the habit of some, and that's corporate worship. So we need to gather in corporate worship. It's just that the New Testament does not directly tell us how often or on what day we should do it. Now, with that said, the church very early on, even the apostles' time, adapted the habit of gathering every Sunday morning for corporate worship. 
This is modeled in Acts chapter 20 or 1 Corinthians 16. Though it's not commanded. Furthermore, in Revelation 1.10, the Apostle John uses the expression, the Lord's Day, to refer to that first day of the week, Sunday, the day they gather for worship. And what a fitting day to gather, the day to remember when our Lord rose from the dead, defeating sin and fulfilling the Sabbath. But this also means under special circumstances, the church can regularly gather on some other day, or they can accommodate as needed, maybe under intense persecution. They would not be sinning in any way to do so. But understand, the church has historically assembled on the Lord's Day, Sunday, and that's a fitting day to get together. We gather and celebrate and rejoice to rest in Christ's finished work. That's what the Sabbath is about. Now, to sum it up then, in his book, The Good News We Almost Forgot, Pastor Kevin DeYoung rounds out this whole discussion on the Sabbath, and I think he captures masterfully how we need to think about this. This is the the takeaway statement. He says this, The most explicit and most important Sabbath principle that remains is this, cease from your works and rest in Christ. He continues, So yes, we still need to obey the fourth commandment, but we need to see how Jesus transforms it. He gives us the substance instead of the shadow. Trust was the point of mosaic shadows, but now the substance is here, he says. Sabbath rest is about making Jesus Christ the center of who we are and relying on Him alone for our salvation. It means ceasing to find approval and righteousness in our deeds. It means we stop doubting God's promises and start trusting that spiritual vitality is found only by resting in Him. Keeping the Sabbath means we give up ourselves and give ourselves over to God letting the Lord work in us through His Spirit, and so begin already in this life the eternal Sabbath rest. Let's do that even as we pray. Let's pray together. Father, we can feel so burdened uh, by what we do in our performance, uh, for how it measures up or fails to measure up, or how we can keep up a pace of so many good things you've put before us, and you know our limits, you know that we are weak, and more than that, you know that we are sinners. And in that, we can find rest in confessing and resting only in Christ. And so as our Sabbath rest, may we walk in joy, walk in freedom like Israel did out of Egypt, and walk in many good works, pointing others to where they can only find rest for their souls. Do this for the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.